Welcome to Hedge Fund Tips with Tom Hayes. I'm Tom Hayes, and this is the 86th video cast and 76th podcast for the week ending Thursday, June 10th, 2021. A lot of great stuff to cover. We're going to do it a little differently this week because we're covering a lot of the media in the article of the week, which we're going to go into how to lose $50 million hedging inflation. Uh, so we're going to uh, just touch on them here and then get into them in detail as we move later into the podcast. So first, I'd just like to thank Liz Clayman and Ellie Terrett for having me on Fox Business on Friday and then again on Monday. And uh, we'll cover both of these uh, segments in, in just a little bit. And then on Tuesday, I was on TD Ameritrade Network with Nicole Petalides and want to thank also Declan Murphy for having uh, having me on as well. Uh, we will go into detail on this segment in just a little bit. Then uh, earlier in the week, I'd like to thank Devik Jain for including me in his article. This was about the Wall Street Bets meme stocks. And I was just basically saying that they've identified stocks with over 30% short interest, and that's what they're targeting. The other thing that's really important about this story is everyone's focused on the short squeeze, but the real uh, story is the gamma squeeze. And what that basically means is while they may screen for stocks with high short interest, what actually happens is because most of the retail buyers don't have a lot of buying power individually, but collectively they do. So while some buy the stock, most of them are buying 10 lots of options and there are 10 million people on the Wall Street Bet Bets trading board. So what happens is you get, you know, just thousands of these little orders of 10, 20, 100 contracts of call options out of the money. And the dealers that sell these options, high implied volatility options is why they're selling it. They're not selling it to lose money. They're selling it to make money. Uh, and they do, by the way. You're not, you know, so uh, you're not getting one over on the dealers. It, although Melvin Capital apparently today said they lost another $600 million. You must, you know, have to work full time to do that. But Leaving that aside, the, the point is that what happens when you get all of these call option orders, the dealers have to buy the stock. So they're making money on overcharging for the options w with the implied volatility because the volatility in the stocks and the demand for the options. So that's how they're getting paid. And they hedge out their underlying risk by buying the stock. So you have all these orders come in, 10 lots, 30 lots, etc., and then the dealers have to buy the heck out of the stock, which pushes the underlying stock up, which encourages more retailer traders to buy more call options, which mean the, and the dealers are happy to sell it to them at, a, at triple digit implied volatility. They'll do that all day long. But then they, they have to buy the stock to hedge the underlying. And then that puts pressure on the shorts. Uh, finally, as an after effect, who have to find stock to cover, but they're competing with the dealers who are hedging, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think what ultimately is going to come down to it when all is said and done, um, <coughs> the regulators will look to not only control naked short selling, which I don't think that, that that's not a factor here. Uh, and I don't think that's been a major factor in any of the meme stocks, although maybe in GameStop initially uh, in January, but not since. The issue is what percentage of the shares outstanding have contracts attached to them in terms of are they selling naked options? 
uh, and that becomes the issue. Uh, and even if it's if it, if the amount doesn't exceed the amount of shares outstanding, the amount of stock that has to be bought to hedge it becomes material as well. So, um, so, so. So that so that's basically what's happening, and that's what's to understand. The moral of the story is what I see happening is they're diluting themselves. So they were initially solely concentrated on GameStop and successful in that, and now there's no uniformity. They're they're diluting their buying power by going after a new stock every single day, and that's why you see a lot of these pop pop and drops with the exception of GameStop has held up, but AMC, you know, popped up uh, to 60, now it's down to 40 because insiders are just sell to you. You know, the, the insiders that have the most perfect knowledge about the business are looking at these retailer traders and say, hey, we'll give you free popcorn, but we're going to sell you our stock. And not only selling stock of the company, the company selling new shares to get uh, capital, but Insiders, C-level executives selling stock direct. I, I, I didn't see exactly who, but there were major sales. I don't know if it was C-level or directors, but bottom line, insiders were selling a ton of stock into the retail at these levels. So if that doesn't give you a message of whether it makes sense to be in the stock, um, then you know, go for it, have at it. But sooner or later, uh, these things resolve to their intrinsic value. And um, so, so while many people are focused on the short interest. That's just a screener. The real story is the amount of option buying and then the hedging and then that forces the short squeeze and it's this cyclical thing. Um, but I see this weakening over time because they're, the concentrated attention like they initially had on GameStop and then to a lesser extent AMC uh, is now being diluted to like 10 stocks a day and then sooner or later, these guys are, you know, the, the people that were buying uh, GameStop before earnings yesterday are now down huge. They just run out of, they simply run out of buying power. They take the, they take hits. There is some churn. They'll get some new people in, but eventually it's it's just too diluted and it, and it goes away. Um, but uh, some of the greatest investors uh, probably of the next generation will come out of this initial cadre of uh, Wall Street bets people, believe it or not, because they'll fall in love with the game, they'll learn how to do it right, and they'll go on to make a fortune legitimately, learning how to analyze companies, uh, etc. Uh, but for now, it's, you know, it's the wild, wild west and, uh, you know, ha- have at it. There's a cost of tuition in every game and, uh, and, and they're now going through that process. Um, okay, so, and this was today, I want to thank Herb Lash for putting me in Reuters. Um, this was related to the inflation prints, which we're going to get into in detail today. Uh, I said inflation's rate of change had people very alarmed, particularly in the commodities basket. Uh, the softening has people a, li- a little bit more at ease. Uh, and we'll look at commodities in a second. With the 10-year barely moving off this noise, I'm inclined to put, uh, to start to put money to work. Uh, yeah, what I specified is I'm inclined to put money to work, start to put money to work selectively in tech, in, in pockets that I don't have a ton of exposure yet. Um, so we have plenty of money to work. But uh, in those areas that uh, got smashed when rates were going up and inflation fears were rampant, and now uh, that it was a sell the rumor, buy the news type of situation, uh, where everyone expected this big inflation print today, we got it, uh, highest in three decades, uh, almost three decades. 
but that was known, and now the market can breathe a sigh of relief. The bad news is out, and now we can look at those stocks and sectors that were really hit hard by people, people's uh, fear of inflation, fear of rising rates, both of which have uh, come off the boil, and that creates opportunity for us. And we're going to look at a lot of opportunity in this podcast video cast today. So thank you for that. Uh, thank, thanks to Herb. Uh, okay, quote of the day from Charlie Munger. The big money is not in the buying or the selling, but in the waiting. And I think that's just common with new traders. They often don't have a lot of money to start with, so they're in a hurry to get rich overnight. And that invariably leads to blowing up. Uh, my best suggestion is just be patient. Most of your ideas, if you're buying good companies that uh, you know are um, fairly valued, if you have patience, uh, they'll reach that intrinsic value and then you'll be able to compound money over time, which was Warren Buffett's secret to success. He always knew he was going to be rich because he understood the power of compounding at a very young age. Um, okay, I want to move on to a couple quick ask me anything questions. There's some really good ones today um, and have been the last few weeks and I think they've really helped. Uh, Shannon Sabin uh, said, Dear Tom, I spend my entire week looking forward to your video. It literally is the greatest thing since sliced bread. Your words are like songs from an angel. Love, mom. Okay, so he listened to the podcast and video cast last week. And uh, all right. So, okay, so he says, okay, but seriously, I placed a tiny little trade because I want to see what happens. Please tell me what I'm missing and where I'm going to get burned. Uh, I bought... Uh, open so open the ticker open is open door it's one of these uh, spacs that you know shot up and then rolled over kind of the, the type of stuff that we're talking about <coughs> and he bought I guess the 1150 calls at six dollars he sent me this question a few days ago and then he did something interesting he sold the January 2023, 1750 strike calls for $6.10. So um, he is covered because he has the right to buy the stock at 1150 uh, through 2025 or 2026. I didn't, I didn't look at it, uh, the warrant exactly, but they usually run out to 25, 26, or 27. So he's got you know five, six years long at 1150. And he's short for two years at seventeen fifty, and the cost to him was nothing. So basically, he he made ten cents on the trade, and he's uh, long at six dollars with a basically a, a, a top end uh, cap profit at. So his max profit is basically six dollars, and he's already gotten paid ten cents, but with transaction fees, call it. He's 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 uh, it, it it's a costless trade. And his max profit is six bucks. And if it goes to zero, he's out flat. He's he's lost nothing. Um, so so he says. So uh, the warrants are one to one exchange at eleven fifty. So on the face of it, it looks like everything goes to zero. I make ten cents. You know, net net transaction fees. Or if uh, open door skyrockets, I execute the warrants for a cost basis of. Uh, he said 1750. He he means 1150. He would he would execute them at 1150 and use them to cover my short call and keep the premium. Uh, seems like one of those too good to be true scenarios. What am I missing here? Okay, Shannon, 
kudos. This is a sophisticated trade. You're not missing much. There are a couple things of why I wouldn't um, lean into this in a huge way, but you've ha- you, this is a home run, sophisticated, smart trade. Um, two things. When you do like a call spread and it's whatever, the same month, a couple strikes away, where you're long uh, – Long the lower if you're if you're long the stock if if you're bullish if you do a, a bull call debit spread and let's say you want to buy uh, IBM for a hundred dollars and instead you buy the ninety dollar call and you sell the ninety five for call it two fifty and then as the stock goes up a few percent that two fifty goes to three fifty you make thirty percent whatever most brokerages don't charge uh, or or sequester uh, assets for margin on a vanilla debit call spread because they can just exercise the um, the long call if the short gets called away. The problem with this trade is I think what you're going to find is that the broker is not going to give you credit for controlling the stock long as they would with an option despite the fact you have effectively the same thing and even better coverage in my view because you've got longer time horizon, uh, I don't think they're going to give you credit for that. I think they're going to recognize it that you're long a warrant and you're naked short the option and you're going to have um, margin issues both um, on the short option and um, on the long warrant they're not going to just exercise that for you to cover the short call um so so basically if all of the short options get called away uh your stock gets called away you're going to have to have the money to exercise 100% of the warrants now you did say in the beginning of the email that you well First, you made that funny joke about my mom, which was actually very funny. But then you said, I placed a tiny little trade. So it sounds to me like you haven't gotten in your in yourself in a situation where you're going to tie up a lot of your capital in margin to make a small profit, the, you know, the $6 spread, in which case this is a perfect trade. And I, I, you know, I, I really credit you. This is thoughtful. It's sophisticated. Uh, and you asked what the downside. The downside is how much of the remainder of your capital. So while it looks like an infinite return now, it probably isn't because there's an opportunity cost to the capital you have that's tied up in margin to protect against, for the brokerage to protect themselves with your money uh, against the trade going sideways, even though you know and everyone listening to this call knows you're fully covered because you can exercise the warrants, but you have to have the capital there to fully exercise. Whereas in a debit spread, they would just do the flip uh, pretty much automatically most most brokers. But really cool, really sophisticated, and it tells that you spent a lot of time paying attention to the busted SPAC warrants because Open Door fit that to a bill. So uh, Shannon, awesome. And then um, uh, uh, Ben Healthy is back. Uh, hi, Tom. Uh, for those of you who have listened, you know he's asked a lot of good questions over the past few weeks. Uh, another good podcast last week. Here's a question for tonight. Uh, do you think REITs 
IYR, VNQ will correct 10 to 20% this summer along with financials and energy. Thank you, Ben. Uh, this is interesting because as the 10-year yield, which we're going to talk a bunch about, uh, here, actually, I'll just pull it up, uh, kind of rolls over. So, so this was the rate of change that got, you know, huge inflation fears, rates spiked up, reopening trade took off, everyone reluctantly got into the cyclicals trade late. Um, and then um, basically it's rolled over. And at the sign of big inflation, it's rolled over. This was a sell the rumor, buy the news situation. Sell the rumor of big inflation, buy the news, meaning um, uh, they bought bonds and yields are now below 150 <coughs> at uh, 145 basis points on the 10-year. Now, historically, uh, higher rates are better for banks. You want the spread, the net interest margin between what they pay for capital, Fed funds rate, and what they, or, you know, we look, usually look at the 210 spread uh, and what they lend capital, and the wider that is, the better. So the 10-year going down, which is why I've said I think that oil, uh, energy stocks, and banks, as much as we love them for the next three to five years, and as much as many of them are up 100, 150% of where we were talking about them uh, last year on this podcast, videocast, um, uh, we think they're going to take a breather. Uh, REITs, on the other hand, tend to do okay, if not better, when yields compress. Uh, and that's because they are a yield instrument like utilities and like treasuries that people go to in search of yield when, um, when, when, when yields compress. So uh, to answer your question, I looked at uh, the REITs, IYR, VNQ. I think they're going to push a little higher even if banks and energy correct here due to um, the tenure coming in a little bit. I think that REITs can can push higher. Uh, I certainly would be looking for some type of pullback because they've basically been straight up the last few months, um, you know, probably in September. I, I, I just wouldn't get too cute with it. I mean, if you look out three to five years, um, you know, we do believe that some of the inflation is transitory for sure. We do believe the inflation fears were overshot for sure. But we also know that Campbell Soup is raising its prices and we'll talk about their uh, earnings this week. We know that Kimberly Clark is raising earnings. So basically all these co companies came into tough comps for Q2 because everyone bought all the packaged foods during the pandemic. And then when they didn't, you know, match that level of food stocking a year later, the market was surprised, which is a joke. And uh, and then the market's like, oh, no, uh, prices are going up. Their margins are going to go down. Their margins are not going to go down. In the short term, they did because they didn't raise prices quickly enough. But every single packaged food and, and staples company on their calls said, we're going to be raising prices in the next few months. Uh, Kimberly Clark did it a month ago. Uh, Procter & Gamble, Colgate-Palmolive, and Campbell's going to do it next. So this is creating an opportunity. We'll talk about that as well. So to answer your question, uh, Ben, I would say um, I think it's going to push a bit higher. I wouldn't, you know, I would I would look at it from a long term view. But if you want to get cute, you know, maybe start to peel it peel it back. If you see uh, uh, the ten year start to go back up, that that's probably when you want to take a little break from them. But I I don't like getting that cute with it because I I like the secular move. 
but uh, that, that's the answer to your question. And, and yes, it's certainly possible, uh, but you got to look at it. It's up whatever it is, 70, 80%. So yeah, 10 to 20% would be normal, irrespective of all this nuance that I'm explaining to you. But uh, no, they're, they, they're not going to trade with, with banks is what I'm saying. So, so banks will probably rest as yields uh, compress a little bit in the short term. Uh, I still see yields by the end of the year, 10-year yield, probably um, after moderating here, if not going lower and everyone changing their thinking, after everyone gets on the board that yields are going lower, then we probably finish the year closer to 2% on the 10-year. But uh, that that's later. I would just say right now, yields seem to be compressing. The bad news is out about inflation. The base effects will be worked through. There will still be some real inflation. Wages, there'll start to be real wage inflation. You'll start to see inflation in goods and services because all these companies have to raise to maintain their margins because their margins compressed a little bit because they were just a quarter behind and they're going to have to rectify that. But they're not going to pay it. We're going to pay it. Uh, and uh, and that's that. Uh Lastly, want to just uh, do a couple quick shout outs because they asked me to. Joshua Clark Bell, he listens in from New Zealand. He's uh, president of Exeter Student Investment Fund. And uh, he, he's studying for a CFA. And he's reached out to me. A number of young guys uh, and gals have reached out to me for advice. Uh, and by the way, he just got an investment banking internship in New York. So kudos to Joshua Clark Bell and also for telling his investment club about hedge fund tips. Kudos for that. Um, and a lot a lot of young people reach out and I always start with the same thing. Number one, start reading the CFA books. Number two, uh, read every single annual letter Warren Buffett's ever written. That's the best education you're ever going to get. And you'll know more than 95% of professional managers by the time you're done. They're available um, either at Hedge Fund Tips, just Google uh, Berkshire annual, annual Letters. Uh, also read The Intelligent Investor by Benjamin Graham. You could also uh, get that for free online or go to Hedge Fund Tips in the search bar. Uh, just type in Buffett's favorite book or something like that and it'll come up and you can download it. And that's usually where you can tell the serious people from the, the, the lack of serious. You know, a lot of people just ask questions uh, which is which is a great thing, but then when you say, "Hey, go do this, go do this," very few follow through with that, and which is fine because this this is not going to be the career path for most most people, uh, but some do, and and some you know really put themselves ten years ahead by following those few steps. Um, the other uh, person I want to uh, shout out, Presley Milton, uh, he lives here up in Connecticut. He reached out. I met him for a cup of coffee, and. Um, really spectacular young guy. And um, I laid out to him what I wish someone had told me when I was 21. And, and a lot of people listening to this listen to the, Well, there are two types of people on this call, actually. There are people who are already really rich. Uh, and it's probably about a third of the call. There are a lot of institutional managers, hedge fund managers, and, and just wealthy people. Uh, and then there are, you know, people in between, um, you know, high net worth, mass affluent, uh, people, a lot of them uh, are are uh, not clients at the five million level, but they're part of the trade service. And then there are a lot of young people that just want to learn because I put out a lot of free information that's really really helpful, uh, and um, and that's great. But you know, I got to talking with him, and I, I saw myself in his shoes, and I wish someone had laid it down. I, I became friendly with um, with a guy named uh, Chuck Bruni who started Oppenheimer Capital. 
uh, probably when I was, uh, gosh, it must have been 15, 20, in my mid, mid to late 20s. And he probably made a couple hundred million with Oppenheimer. And I really looked up to him. It was just phenomenal. And I remember we were at like a dinner party. And one of his contemporaries was this really sophisticated guy. We went to the same uh, uh, college. uh, But, you know, he was much older. He was closer to Chuck's age. And uh, really, like, high IQ out of the park. Probably 160, 165 always had these obscure, sophisticated deals, you know, about mining uranium in some Eastern European country and getting it this way, you know, always complicated stuff. And his wife, and I'm not going to say his name, but his wife asked Chuck, he goes, you know, uh, you always speak so highly of my husband and, um, you know, he's so smart and all that stuff. And she said, if he's so smart, how come he hasn't made any money like you have? And how come we're not rich? And I couldn't believe this, by the way. And Chuck said to this this not really nice lady, um, married to this brilliant guy, and he said, well, it's pretty simple. He never got control of capital. And that's really the name of the game. And what I was sharing with Milton, and, and uh, I think he got it, uh, was if getting rich is what you're interested in, and not everyone's interested in getting rich. There's so many more interesting things to do. I mean, you look at Elon Musk. I read his book on the way to and back from Panama, I mean, the guy is just unbelievable what he's done with SpaceX. I didn't really know the SpaceX story, but you, you ought to read it because like he's known for Tesla because it's a public company. What he's done with SpaceX and the obstacles they've overcome and what it, it's it, you cannot read that book without respecting this guy's tenacity, uh, brilliance, you know, ability to get people to see his vision and work hard. I mean, I learned so much reading that book. Um uh, uh, but but as far as you know, wanting to get rich, it, it comes down to controlling capital. And there's three basic ways you can do it. Number one is you can uh, do something like Elon Musk did. You can come up with an idea. You can take a company public. And through the public markets, you're going to control a ton of capital. You're going to have access to unlimited capital, other people's money. So that's first way. You get rich through going public. So Jeff Bezos is a great example of that. Elon Musk is a great example of that. Many people on the Forbes 400 get rich through controlling capital through a public company. In some cases, it's a private company. uh, But when you have assets that generate cash, people will lend you all types of money for expansion. So think of like uh, Charles Koch and the Koch brothers. They, They have these private assets. Uh, every time you go into a bathroom, you see their uh, paper company, Georgia Pacific, and you know they started with a refinery, etc. But, but by and large, it's through public companies where a lot of wealth is created. That's one way to control capital. Second way to control capital is to manage outside money. So you can, you can multiply your intellectual capital through expressing it through more and more dollars. That's the second way you can, you can build wealth. Uh, and the third way, uh, third way is through real estate is a great way to control capital because um, banks will lend a lot on that. So, so you're you're getting access to a tremendous amount of capital that you wouldn't have by going in one of these three three directions. I would say real estate is one way to control a ton of capital. Managing money, you got to know what you're doing and be good, and then people will uh, give you more money. And by the way, shout out to clients who did just that this week. Um, I'm very thankful for that. And then. Um, uh, and then a public company. So you have to have an idea or you have to have like a roll-up strategy, but uh, uh, gaining access to capital that way. And sometimes you have to just labor first to learn learn the ropes. You're not going to, you know, have a public company, but, you know, 23, it happens. Zucker, Zucker, uh, Zuckerbrod did it. Uh, Zuckerberg did it. But um, 
but th- but those are kind of eye on the prize type of things. If you can go in one, if if wealth is your primary objective, one of those three three different things is is critical. You have to control a lot of capital in order to make a lot of money, either through creating something and taking it public, managing a lot of capital, uh, or um, or real estate where you can borrow against it. And Warren Buffett's the perfect example. Like the brilliance of Warren is Geico, the the insurance float. You know, he has access to billions of permanent capital at low cost because he doesn't underwrite when it's unprofitable. He doesn't chase the business when when the price hardening is not there. He just doesn't write business. And uh, and he's access billions and billions of capital. And rather than stick it in fixed income that earned, you know, three to four percent, he put a good chunk into equities. And that's how he was out to able to outperform and get control of capital. So uh, for all the young people, I would say that that is the name of the game. Shout out uh, to Presley, to uh, Joshua uh, and um Shaurab, who I talked about a couple weeks ago, and to these Ask Me Anything questions. Uh, hope, hope that was helpful. Okay, moving right along. Um, okay, today we got the inflation data. So let's take a look. First off, I want to say the good news is continuing jobless claims actually beat expectations. This is the second time in about four months that that happened. they consistently missing which I think says that the 24 states who have extinguished the enhanced unemployment benefits is starting to kick in. People are starting to get back to work. The other thing is a lot of these employers that are left with no choice are turning to technology. So these people waiting for their last extended unemployment check in September may not have a job to go back to because uh, businesses have been forced to replace them with technology. You're seeing articles of that all day long. So, um, you know, I I think you're going to see a fear of loss and an urgency to getting back. But I also think with 26 of the 24 states still having the extended unemployment benefits through September, the jobs reports will remain subdued. They've missed the last two months in a row. They missed less this month than last month because, like I said, 24 states extinguished the extended unemployment benefits. So people said, I'm no longer getting paid more to sit at home. I'm going to go back to work. Um, But keeping that... um, uh, jobs report subdued is going to give the Fed cover to delay tapering uh, into Q1 versus Q4, which is good for the market. <clears throat> the core CPI came in at 3.8 versus 3.4. Uh, overall CPI year on year uh, up 5% versus 4.7%. And initial jobless claims was a little bit higher than anticipated 376 versus 370. Um the interesting thing about it is uh, Carl Quintanilla put out, worth noting, one-third of the CPI increase is in used cars. And this goes back to the semiconductor shortage, and obviously less people wanted to be on mass transit, and they wanted to be in their own cars, uh, particularly pre-vaccine, and, and I think that's going to start to shift, and, and things are going to get caught up. Um Ryan Dietrich also adds to Carl Cantanita's tweet. He says used car prices are up nearly 30% in the last year. A lot of inflation data floating around today. Uh, Why is this happening? Well, in addition to what I said, he says rental car companies are buying back their fleets that they sold last year, paying whatever it takes, because as travel comes back, obviously there's demand for the cars. And I still think people are uh, probably more inclined to rent their own car than to to do Uber. Although all of that's changing very quickly, we're we're basically, 
getting very close to herd immunity here in the U.S. based on the numbers, uh, as the cases certainly locally here have fallen to virtually nil. Uh, and I think that's going to continue to happen around the country. So um, so this is the 10-year yield. Today it broke below 150 basis points. This was the period February through April. The rate of change was too dramatic. That's what caused tech, utilities, and uh, staples to sell off. And... Uh, and big pharma, all the yield yield plays, and we've been starting to get involved in that, and we're going to talk about why. The other thing is, this is from Bespoke. This is just a list of all the asset classes year to date, and why I find this helpful. I think this is from two or three days ago, uh, June, yeah, about, uh, yeah, a little less than a week ago. So the S and P was up thirteen percent. The Nasdaq was up seven, so that's lagging. And I like to look at the sectors, and um, obviously we had a huge overweight in energy and financials from last year when we were pounding the table into first quarter uh, and second quarter this year and trim some of that back, but still have for the long term and we'll add back if we get a meaningful uh, pullback in the next few months. <laughs> but most people you hear now are chasing these after they're up 48% and 31% respectively, uh, we think the opportunity uh, now is in these laggard groups that tend to outperform in the quote unquote worst six months of the year from May through October. And this piece of the puzzle has started to confirm that in order for these group laggard groups to work, yields had to stabilize because in this environment, they sold off as they were going from 100 to 175. In this environment, they can start to get bid because those long duration assets as the discount rate comes down become more and more valuable once again. And the yield becomes more and more valuable of uh, utilities, of pharma stocks that have high yields, <coughs> of staples and um, in, in addition to that. So uh, if you look, it's no coincidence that we always buy what's out of favor. So we trim what's in favor now. When we were pounding the table, no one wanted it last year when it was negative. Now it's up 100, 150% off the lows. And now we're looking, uh, we started in late February, early March, and we're, we're going to update on that on utilities, um, uh, big pharma, which is listed as healthcare here. And then staples. And if you can see, those are the laggards. And I think they're going to start to get bid and play catch up. And these are going to start to moderate. And that's that's kind of and tech and tech, certain selective pockets of tech. So we'll talk about that. You could also do the same thing on a country by country basis. China has lagged only up 3.9%. And we think there's huge opportunity. Uh, Japan has lagged. Uh, I've never really played material in Japan. I do like a couple of the names like Takeda Pharmaceutical, but that's more in line with my pharmaceutical theme. Um, uh, you know, maybe some of the uh, car companies like Honda, but I think they've run up uh, quite a bit. So I, I wouldn't really play there that dramatically. And it also has to coincide. So like when I'm playing China, I wouldn't play Tech China if I wasn't playing, if I wasn't interested in Tech US. So um, so we'll talk about that, but you can just see in black and white or rainbow colors, thanks to Bespoke, uh, why we are looking at what we're looking at when everyone else is looking here, chasing what worked yesterday, uh, trying to extrapolate forward that it's going to do another 48% in the next six months. And while I think that's probable over the next you know uh, few years for sure, 
uh, in both energy and financials, there's a lot of legroom. I think in the short term, uh, they'll take a breather and these these out of favor yield sensitive plays where now yields are becoming favorable are going to start to get bid. And it also coincides with the seasonality of when utility staples tech tend to do best, which is in the worst six months, May through October. Um, okay. Uh, so getting to China, by the way, uh, so this is interesting from Barron's China is the elephant in the room as Europe targets American tech. So by Europe trying to uh, crack down, they find uh, Google 278 million. Apple's got that lawsuit, uh, with Spotify about the uh, 30% cut on the app store. And they've got another one with the video game, make Epic games in the U S on the 30% cut. So while these guys are getting battered, China is actually running free. And I think that's going to help the Alibabas of the world with their uh, Ali Cloud, which is a competitor to AWS, uh, to grow because their international expansion has been very rapid. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit about Alibaba. The second thing which I had anticipated is this administration was going to be more interested in human rights issues with China than business uh, uh, issues with China, although they'll talk about that. But what we saw today is Trump's TikTok, WeChat, and WeChat actions targeting China revoked by, by Biden. So this is very positive for China tech. And it's, it's kind of indicating that um, the anticipation of more delistings is probably not going to take place. It'll be the lists that was already out that had direct military ties, which was China Mobile and some of the others. Uh, China Natural uh, National Oil CNOOC. So it seems like a lot of that's in the rearview mirror. And by them opening up these things, um, so the, the Biden executive order also revokes a Trump era ban affecting the Alipay payment platform, which is owned by Chinese billionaire Jack Ma's Ant Group, and which, by the way, Alibaba owns a third of. So this kind of went on the, under the radar today with the inflation data but this is a big thing and this is strongly in line with the uh, china tech thesis we've been pounding the table on for the last couple of weeks now the other thing that supports the uh sell the rumor by the news on the inflation print today as we've talked about is that commodities x energy have rolled over now i i think that's going to change x energy at with wti at 70 uh Today, we saw a headline. This is Walter Bloomberg. He, he publishes Bloomberg um, uh, headlines on Twitter. His handle is at Delta One. He's worth a follow. Uh, it's nice of him to do this. U.S. lifts sanctions on Iran oil officials. So it tells me that they're already horse trading, which implies that although the quote-unquote deal was pushed back till August, things are happening behind uh, the scene that imply that uh, sanctions are going to be lifted and, oil, and Iran's going to be able to dump a lot of oil back on the market in the short term, uh, which would be in line with my thesis that the late money to energy and uh, financials after 100 to 150% moves is going to get hit in the short term, temporary shakeout uh, to knock them out. So, so just a lot of developments that got caught under the radar with the inflation print. But here's the most important thing that's been happening regarding inflation. You look at the grains, they've just totally rolled over the last three weeks. Wheat, soybean meal, this is all food input. So the um, staples companies are gonna raise prices while prices are coming down in the short term. I think the trend is up over the next three to five years with all of these commodities, but 
the fact that we got a little reprieve in the short term, cocoa, uh, but the most important one is lumber, down from 1700 to 1100 That's a huge drop. Uh, that's a game changer, and, um, and this helps the uh, kind of loosen the, uh, the inflation narrative in the short term, seeing some of these grains, meats, cattles down, <laughs> even metals, copper's down pretty big in the last, uh, from 480 to 450. So it's down in the last four weeks, platinum. So, um, so we'll see what happens with oil in coming weeks, but, um, expect a surprise, non-surprise, with the Iran deal, which will take the uh, levered long uh, late players in the sector who reluctantly got into the sector uh, at the wrong time. They'll knock the stuffing out of them. We'll add to our core positions to, re- to uh, build them back to full positions and uh, off, to the next, uh, off to the next level over the next three to five years. So here are the Chinese stocks. As you can see, certain groups, uh, so the education stocks got hit with regulation crackdown. It looks like they're starting to get bid. Those were the worst hit. The ones that we talked about uh, for the last few weeks, this was XPEV. It's just had a monster move, 24 to 38. Um, and then a number of the ones in the Archegos portfolio uh, are still... Um, still building bases like Baidu, Tencent Music, VIP Shops, IQ. Uh, and I think there's still opportunity here. Alibaba, we're going to talk a lot about today. That's our favorite pick for tech and Chinese tech. Uh, VIP Shops was another one in the Archegos. I think these are all going to be great opportunities, particularly seeing that type of stuff happening behind the surface uh, to de-escalate with China on these business things. I think that... Uh, that these are going to get bid with the whole tech sector, but they're going to get extra because they've lagged beyond the tech sector because of the China overhang, which is now starting to thaw now that the administration is focusing on things outside of COVID. So um, so that gives you kind of an idea. Some of them have already moved, but there's still great opportunity. I think IQ we own, TME we have a little, I think, and then Baba is our, our bigger position in that group. Uh, which is really our sole focus uh, on the China tech, and we'll get into that. Uh, healthcare. So we've been talking about this since late February, uh, late February, early March. Uh, so most of them had that. Let's see if we can get back here to a weekly. So most of them, you see, like they had this huge move, and then they've been consolidating. Now they're they're taking off again. They had the huge move. Now they're taking off again. So Lily broke out. Uh, Merck, same thing from March. They're just slowly working up. Our biggest two are Pfizer and Novartis. Now, Novartis, it did bottom at the end of February and March, but it's just been this slow grind sideways from 83 to 90. It took like April, May, three months, and now it's breaking out this week, which is really exciting. It's up like 3.5% so far this week. And uh, this is our biggest. And we also have Pfizer. Same thing. It, it did that bottom in February, uh, late February, March. You can look back to, I believe, the February 26th article at hedgefundtips.com. You can find all of our old articles under sentiment or under uh, commentary. I tag them on both. And you can just look back at everything we've ever written and then just look back and see what happened. Um, I think you'll find it really, really interesting. Um so back to pharma. So the, this is very, very helpful to pharma because pharma stocks, a lot of them pay out big dividends. And when yields compress, everyone wants the dividend income. 
And, uh, and that's what happens in choppy, indecisive periods like summertime doldrums, which is when these tend to outperform. So, um, so Novartis and Pfizer are still our two biggest picks from the end of February, early March. They were just a grind for the last three months, slowly higher, and now it looks like they really want to start to move, and that's pretty exciting to see. Uh, still opportunity here, Gilead, uh, Glaxo, um, you know, Amgen is starting to pick up. So, so all these that have just been grinding up slowly since that February article are now looking like they want to move. And that would be in line seasonally and with what's happening with rates. Same, same story with the utilities. Um, uh, our two biggest are Dominion and American Electric Power. Again, right from that article, shot up. They've been consolidating for a few weeks. Now it looks like they want to make that second leg we've been talking about. And where's American Electric Power? Uh, they're all trading kind of similarly, but th- those are our favorite two. Ah, here we go. Shot up huge from that article, consolidated sideways for the last month, and uh, we think this is going to take a next leg, next leg higher. And there are a lot of them here. You, you know, you don't have to just focus on the ones that we are. You know, Con Edison. Um, uh, what are some others? Uh, NE. We uh, think we put in the trade service. Um, PCG. This is an interesting one. This is a bankruptcy restructuring. It's one of the largest positions in third point portfolios. So you kind of get two bangs for your buck. It's a special situation. <clears throat> Plus you could have a real, um, catalyst changer where you get a double type of thing, but you can't time that. So that, that, that's, you know, you could be sitting grinding sideways for two years till the government makes a decision on something or it could happen next month, but it's, it's a big position for him and it's a big position for Seth Klarman and Baupost, but that's more of a special situation than an easy trade, um, you know, for the next few months. And what I'm looking for is, is the easy stuff for you guys to benefit from, uh, not opinion, uh, not advice, just opinion. See terms on hedgefundtips.com by clicking here. Um, okay. Uh, so we did utilities now. Pharma. No, okay. So now we're on to... Sta- so we did utilities. Now we're on to Staples. Uh, Kellogg was our big, again, from that late February article. Shot right up. Consolidated. Shot up. Consolidated. I think this has more juice. Um and Campbell Soup, uh, uh, to put it mildly, crapped the bed for uh, earnings. We still like this name. We added some here this week. And the reason is um, exactly what I covered earlier. People had high expectations. I mean, you know, the first thing everyone bought uh, same time last year was can- canned products, stock shel- stocking shelves, apocalypse uh, scenario, so they did a ton last year and their margins compressed because of inflation. But they're going to solve both of those things. And the CEO explicitly said nothing here has changed in our longer term trends uh, and they're going to raise prices. At the same time, input costs are going back down. So the margins are going to increase. Uh, demand is normalized. Their snack product. And, and I, I keep saying this, but the only thing they have to do to like literally the stock would go up 25% overnight Change it from Campbell Soup to Campbell Snacks or Campbell Foods because their snack portfolio is amazing. They have kettle, they've got nuts, they've got all the things that you guys eat. It's basically a mini Pepsi without the soda because Pepsi has all the snacks, which is why they've uh, outperformed uh, Coke in terms of stock performance of late. Is uh, over, you know of late is the last decade uh, because of that. And Campbell, I think, is going to be an incredible story moving forward. But as our friend 
Charlie Munger said the big money is not in the buying or the selling, but in the waiting. And we think that one's worth waiting for. Uh, and it gave us another opportunity to, to size up. And, um, and that's that. So we did Campbell, we did uh, Kellogg. And um, let's see if there's some others here. Ah, here are uh, two that are giving you a second bite. Kimberly Clark bounced off that February article. It's back near the same levels. We think this is an incredible opportunity for the intermediate term. Uh, and Clorox as well. Same story. People think that no one's going to clean anymore. It's, again, same story. Prices are going up. Margins are going to be retained, if not expanded, as commodity prices stabilize in the short time, short term. Then you've got the yield play with with uh, with yields compressing. People are looking for the dividend payers and the dividend growers, of which these all qualify, and uh, it it's all kind of fitting together. Now for the article of the week: How to lose fifty million dollars hedging inflation. <laughs> so uh, in early two thousand nineteen, during his uh, twenty eighteen annual letter, uh, Warren Buffett made a few key points that seem more salient today than ever before, particularly going into this inflation print. I wrote the article last night. I posted it this morning uh, around 7 a.m. <clears throat> so he said this, and it's really critical considering everyone's fear about inflation and uh, most people buying Bitcoin be- to hedge fiat printing and inflation. So he said, those who regularly preach doom because of government budget deficits, as I regularly did myself for many years, if you look back at his letters in the 80s, he he was concerned about uh, budget deficits, might note that our country's national debt has increased roughly 400-fold during the last of my 77-year periods. That's 40,000%. Suppose you had foreseen this increase and panicked at the prospect of runaway deficits and a worthless currency. To protect yourself, you might have eschewed stocks and opted instead to buy gold. So here's what happened. Let's say, and the reason he uses 1942 is because on March 11th, 1942, he bought his first stock, which I think was three shares of Capital Cities. And um, so... If he had bought gold and said, so let's say he bought $10,000 of gold in 1942 because of the deficits. Remember, they were borrowing like crazy coming out of the Depression. You had World War II, all these things through the 40s. And you had every right to be worried about a worthless currency and spiraling deficits. Debt to GDP got to 120%. By the end of the 1940s, post-World War II, by the way, as the growth kicked in by early 50s, it was down to uh, mid-60s. So the growth offset some of that. But even so, if you bought $10,000 of gold in 1942, by the time you wrote this letter in 2019, that $10,000 in gold became $400,000. That's pretty good. Uh, However... The same $10,000 invested in the S&P 500 with dividends reinvested became $51 million. $51 million versus $400,000. So by being worried about a worthless currency and spiraling deficits, you lost over $50 million by buying gold instead of buying the S&P 500. That's the bad news. The good news is if you'd left it in cash, you'd have no purchasing power. So gold 100% protects your purchasing power and it is a way to hedge against money printing. The problem is it only does it by about 1% a year above inflation. So um, 
On Monday, I was on Fox Business with Liz Clayman, um, and I was asked to speak on former President Trump's comments. He, President Trump said that Bitcoin, it just seems like a scam. I don't like it because it's another currency competing against the dollar. President Trump continued, I want the dollar to be the currency of the world. And uh, the key point that I made was that most rational participants are buying Bitcoin as an inflation head against government fiat money printing. However, history has proven that productive assets that that have yield are better, a better inflation hedge than non-productive speculative assets in the long term. In the short term, they can do anything. Bitcoin could go to, you know, uh, the moon and we'll talk about that. Uh, gold could go to the moon in the short term. But... Um, in the long t- and and one of the things that shows us that is if president trump is a, is correct and bitcoin's a quote unquote scam it could possibly get a lot more uh, irrational for a longer period of time than the doubters can remain solvent so 400 years ago during tulip mania uh, the average price of a tulip uh, which was considered scarce a tulip bulb one single tulip bulb reached the value of an average house in Amsterdam or about $350,000 in today's terms. So could Bitcoin go up to, to that high? Sure. I mean, if they were willing to pay that much for a tulip bulb, they're definitely willing to pay it for uh, you know, a, a digital currency, which they believe is scarce. The, uh, the issue is that while Bitcoin is scarce, the amount of digital coins in circulation is not. As of January 2021, there were over 4,000 digital tokens in circulation. So um, so we'll see. So whether Bitcoin, Bitcoin lasts as a store of value as gold has done, uh, we'll continue, you know, we continue to believe that productive assets are always going to outperform non-productive assets in the long term, regardless of how irrational prices become. And to the tune uh, in 1942, if you would bet on speculative non-productive asset like gold to hedge out chaos and inflation, you would have lost $50 million worth of gains because if you had just bet on U.S. businesses, S&P 500, the top 500 businesses, big business that have pricing power, uh, you would have gained a lot more. And that's my point, is that the biggest companies in the biggest economy in the world we're gonna, are going to have much more pricing power and a moat than a digital currency over time. And that's the whole name of the game is it doesn't matter if our currency goes worthless and we trade in seashells. If you own Coca-Cola, you're going to command the most amount of seashells uh, because you control share. So if, if, if we trade in seashells or we trade in bitcoins or we trade in uh, who, who's the guy I saw? Portnoy was on Fox Business today talking about uh, Small Moon or Safe Moon or whatever the newest coin is. So if we trade in Safe Moon and you own a basket of the biggest U.S. companies with pricing power and moats like Coca-Cola, like Procter & Gamble, like uh, you know so, some of the biggest companies, they're going to be able to raise prices and you're going to get more of those Small Moons or Safe Moons or whatever the hell they're called. Uh, and that's how, how you're going to build wealth and, and probably to a hundred to one, uh, gain over just own, owning the, whatever is the asset or the rock or whatever people think they're going to do to hedge inflation and chaos, uh, is going to be less effective. You'll wind up with more of those 
tokens by buying productive businesses than buying the token itself is what I'm trying to convey. And that's a critical lesson from Warren Buffett. And I think a very timely lesson given where we are with the coin rages and the inflation fears and the deficit fears. It's like it's 1942 all over again in terms of that or the late 40s when debt to GDP was 120%. Uh, you can hedge in, in the long term by buying big companies that have pricing power. Uh, and, and that's the name of the game. So um, the old saying, and by the way, this chart from Goldman Sachs shows that uh, in, institutions still aren't buying the Bitcoin narrative. That may change soon or it may not change at all, but it hasn't changed yet. And uh, it says, which investment style class is your favorite? Uh, Bitcoin is their least favorite. And which investment is your least favorite? Bitcoin is their least favorite. So, uh, you know, they're not they're not yet coming over in droves. Part of that is now an ESG story. And part of that is just the volatility around it. Uh, the old saying is that if you own gold, you're going to be able to purchase the same suit 50 years later with the same amount of gold. And that has held true. And that's why I say gold has preserved purchasing power. So if you're looking to do a little bit better than inflation, about 1% compounded, gold is a good bet. But that 10,000 only gives you 40, 400,000 over 77 years. Buy big business, deal with the short-term volatility for the long-term reward, and um, you wind up with a 100 to 1 return, uh, or in the case of 10,000, it was $50, $50 million more. And the way I put it is, had you just owned productive assets instead of gold, you could have owned the entire suit factory. So with 50 million, you could buy the suit factory. With 400,000, uh, you could buy uh, you know, a bunch of suits is basically the story. Uh, on Friday, <coughs> I was on uh, the Clayman Countdown. Again, thanks to Liz Clayman and Ellie Terrett for having me on. And the question there was the jobs report and what's the trade. And uh, my point was that the second miss gives the Fed cover to delay tapering, which is good for stocks. And that's also going to be good for, um, you know, obviously not rising rates. That's a 2023 story. Raising rates is a 2023 story. So that really gives Fed cover to delay tapering. And the trade that I said was some of the left behind groups that had been taken out to the woodshed and shot based on rates spiking too quickly. Now that rates are coming in and the uh, jobs reports are missing, which implies the Fed will stay longer in the market buying $120 billion a month and keep rates low longer. Uh, the trade was tech and then defensives, utility staples, and um, big pharma. Uh, and in tech, I emphasized Alibaba. And that's Chinese tech, so you get to kill two birds with one stone. You get the China play, which has had the... Uh, policy overhang, which is now starting to thaw, and you get big tech in the name of Baba, which is my top uh, tech pick, and um, and that and that was that. We'll go into that. The other point that I made is with Chair Powell being up for reappointment in February, it's likely he wouldn't want to rock the boat unless inflation really reared its head. Uh, so my guess is that tapering becomes an issue uh, later in Q1 of next year. 
um, after the reappointment, and he should certainly be reappointed because he saved us from a Great Depression last year by acting quickly and effectively with the right policies along with Secretary Mnuchin and the administration, as well as Secretary Pelosi, uh, Secretary uh, Speaker Pelosi uh, also came to bat and got it done in a bipartisan way. So kudos to everyone last year for getting that done. For those of you on the podcast, you're going to get cut off after uh, 45 seconds. Go to hedgefundtips.com and you can just uh, watch the video cast. Click on video cast here. It'll be the first one that pops up. Just fast forward the YouTube video to minute 60 and you will pick up exactly where you left off word for word to get the last 10 minutes. Uh, and you can also actually rewind if you want to see some of the charts that we've been discussing over the last 59 minutes. Um, so that's that. The other point that I made was that um, uh, there, there are still 9.3 million people unemployed, 5.8% uh, unemployment rate. This compares to the economy pre-COVID. In February of